This is Black Talk, where global black experts mix with local voices from the black community. Personal stories meet historical context, and black achievement is celebrated as we explore the realities of anti-black racism. Here are your co-hosts, Andy Knight and Zach Penda. Hi, I'm Andy Knight. Hi, I'm Zach Penda. Our guest today is a familiar name to many Canadians, Selena Caesar Chavin. She's the former Member of Parliament for Whitby, Ontario, and during her time in office, she served as Parliamentary Secretary to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau himself, as well as Parliamentary Secretary for International Development. She's been awarded several distinctions for her work, both in championing mental health and in the community. She was featured in Oprah Winfrey's O Magazine, and she was named Chatelaine Magazine's Woman of the Year in 2019. Currently, she serves as the Senior Advisor for Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion Initiatives, and as an adjunct lecturer at Queen's University. In addition to all of this, she also finds time to be an author, a business consultant, and an international speaker. Please enjoy our discussion with Selena Caesar Chavin. Selena, I, I, I think we can begin by asking you to talk a little bit about the book. You, your book is a combination of a memoir on the one hand, but also almost like a self-help book for young women who are interested in leadership and want to know what they need to do in order to be able to overcome some of the barriers that they face in uh, our country, Canada, multicultural Canada. So can you talk a little bit about the book and why you chose those two sort of ways of getting your points across in the book? Yeah. So as soon as you said self-help, you know, I started nodding because like you understand one of the things with writing a book the way that I did is that sometimes I felt like, oh, my goodness, what if people don't understand why I wrote it this way? You know, um, I could have written a book that just listed my accomplishments or the stories around my accomplishments. And I really thought it was important to write a different kind of memoir, one that not only talked about some of the challenges that I had, but one that could that could walk people through their own moments of challenge can be a book that people who have had challenges could say, okay, I could pick myself up, dust myself off and start all over again. And then lastly, that, you know, even after challenges, there can be success, however you define it. I wanted people to know that um, that they weren't alone in some of the challenges that they had. And I thought about all the times that I've made mistakes, and there are a lot in the book, and that nobody really teaches you what to do when you make a mistake. So I wrote a book on it. <laughs> you know, that's one of the refreshing things about the book is that uh, you sort of lay it right on the line. Um, the flaws, as well as the you know the polished nature of your your existence, but also the the cracks uh, is some of the things that happened to you during the time that you were a politician. But before we talk about your politician days, let's go all the way back to the beginning. Your days in Grenada, uh, as a Caribbean person myself, born and bred in Barbados, I'm very interested in the fact that you came from Grenada and you came to Canada, as many uh, Black Canadians from the Caribbean have done, uh, and found yourself in, a, in this multicultural country, supposedly. But 
I want you to talk a little bit about your origins and what it was like growing up as a kid in Grenada. So I didn't stay too long in Grenada. I, I was born there. I came here when I was just about two years old. But as is customary with a lot of Caribbean families, my parents came to Canada ahead. And then I joined them when I was two. And, you know, I don't really know too much about my time in Grenada. Obviously, I was a baby. I don't have any memory of that. But I do have that sense of being in that first apartment that my parents had in Canada and just kind of thinking, man, this place is dark. (laughs) I came in January and, you know, just imagining myself as a young two-year-old who my grandparents' place in Grenada has like this wonderful pink wall. You know, the Caribbean houses, they're painted in these wonderful colors. Sometimes you think like, why would you paint your house that color? But we had that vibrancy, that joie de vivre, and we painted that joie de vivre on all of our houses. And we we actually celebrated color and life and vibrancy. And then we came here to like an apartment in Rexdale and was like, what, what happened to all the color? Did the color get drained from the world? And so, uh, you know, I just remember thinking, man, this place is underwhelming for such a big, (laughs) big country and it's cold. (laughs) One thing that I that I noticed in the book was you're talking very fondly of Mrs. Caesar, uh, your grandmother. And uh, she was described as a strong and fierce woman and someone that she looked up to. So I was just kind of wondering if you can maybe for our audience talk towards uh, what kind of lessons she instilled from you, she instilled in you at a young age. And if any of those lessons helped you navigate Ottawa in any way. Wow. So my grandmother, she wasn't the soft and squishy grandmother type. She was very stoic, very sort of this formidable force about her, you know, so I didn't call her grandmother or grandma or nana or anything like that. I called her Mrs. Caesar, Um, especially as I got older, I called her Mrs. Caesar. I'm pretty sure I didn't do that the whole time. Um, And she died when I was, my eldest was two, she's 21 now. So she died quite some time ago. And she really, I think she more shaped my entrepreneurial side, not necessarily my politics side, because she was an entrepreneur. She was like the, the ultimate matriarch of the family where, you know, you kind of, wherever she stepped, you wanted to step in her tracks. You wanted to be sort of in her, in her light at all times. Cause if you fell on the shadow side, you just didn't want to know what happened at that point. So she was really this woman that I, I looked up to the way that she talked, the way she carried herself, the way that she was able to articulate her thoughts. It was wit. It was this kind of quickness of the tongue that she had that I thought, man, I just really wanted to be here. She, she was the clap back before clap back was a thing, you know? (laughs) Yeah. So I think she really influenced my entrepreneurial spirit, my ability to sort of take no prisoners kind of attitude. And so that, that would have bled into politics a little bit, but uh, most of her characteristics, I see myself in, in business. Wonderful. No, um, one of the things I noticed in the book was your candidness about mental health issues. And I just want to know where, you know, where that came from. You, you know, you, you became an advocate for mental health in Canada. And of course, you've been given awards and um, for your contributions in this field. 
but it must have had something to do with your own personal experience, I think, as a, as a youth growing up in Canada. Right. So, you know, Andy, writing this book uh, was a very cathartic experience. And so a lot of the things that I realized I did in particular moments, I was only able to realize it after writing the book and sort of thinking about, oh, yeah, wow, that was that was why that moment was so phenomenal for me. My advocacy, the ability that I have to advocate, whether it's on mental health or it's related to equity and justice, is not just anchored in my values and my principles. What anchors my values and my principles is the pain, some of the pain that I've experienced in my life and the real tension around not wanting other people to experience that pain, even though I know they will. Part of me just doesn't want that for anybody. You know, I'm very open when I talk with my children, especially my daughters, about my hurts, my mistakes, things. Because I just, I prefer that they knew everything that I did that was bad. So they never have to experience that pain. And so when I spoke up about mental health, it was actually by accident, to be honest. It was World Suicide Prevention Day. And I posted something on uh, Facebook just saying, you know, as the clouds roll in, I hope you know that tomorrow will be a brighter day. The world needs you here. Uh, Althea Raj saw it from Huffington Post and said, can you write a blog about this? And I thought, oh, for sure, I could I could write a blog. I typed the blog explaining my experiences in politics in early 2016 when I actually had what people would typically call a nervous breakdown. I was hospitalized for, for about three or four days, typed that out, didn't realize that it was going to go viral. I thought I was writing a little blog that would be somewhere buried in Huffington Post. And this thing exploded. The reason why I became an advocate around mental health was for two reasons. The first was I met an elder, a Black elder woman, and and she came up to me after I finished speaking at a, a conference about mental health, one of the topics. And she said, thank you for speaking up. Because often we sit in our own pain, we sit in our unknowing, and we don't know that it's okay to be okay, and we don't get the help that we need. And then this a second message that I received was from a young woman who said, thank you for speaking up. I'm glad you had the courage to do so. But if I spoke up, I fear that I would lose my, my job or my kids. And that is a reality for some people. And so hearing those two messages, I knew that there was a responsibility to talk as much as possible because people needed help. Either they needed help in the knowing what was wrong with them and the destigmatization, or the fact that some people can't even talk about it to the point where, there could you imagine being so afraid to lose your job or your children that you won't get the help that you need? Whether that is real or not is irrelevant. It's just the fact that you're living in that fear. And so if my voice added any kind of reprieve to that fear, then it was worth me speaking up louder and louder about my own experiences in order to make someone else a little bit stronger in theirs. Just piggybacking off of that, you really are open in the memoir is one thing that I noticed. And moving from Granada now into Toronto, where you did grow up and you went to high school and everything, I thought it was really interesting how you mentioned back in 1992, I believe it was, at the U of T campus, you felt it was largely white and Asian over there. And you also mentioned that you wanted to go to McMaster or Queens instead. And so what I want to ask for some of the university students listening that might be of a ethnic minority and that might be experiencing that here, because um, the University of Alberta is a predominantly white institution and uh, there's very, very little percentage of ethnic minorities in relation to 
the majority. So what I want to just know is why did you want to go to um, McMaster or Queens? And then for the students that are in your situation right now, how were you able to get through that? So it's interesting because Queens still is a very white elitist school. So I would have been going right from the frying pan into the fryer. I wanted to go to Queens to get away from my house. <laughs> um, I'm the only girl child. And I, I, I want to say that, you know, I, I dedicated the book to my mother. And, you know, I said that she's the iron, the iron that sharpened me, the iron that created this like fierce woman that I am, no matter the tensions that we had growing up, you know, I, I was really a rebellious person because I kept thinking, I just got to get away from the strictness of my mother. I got to get away from her. And so I kept rebelling and she just kept like grinding, you know, it created the person that I am. So I dedicated the book to my mom, but going to Queens and McMaster was essentially an escape route. Because it's just a little bit out of it's a little bit out of the area where you live then. <laughs> yes. I grew up in Toronto, so in Brampton. So going to McMaster would have been two hours away, or going to Queens would have been three hours away. So I couldn't take the bus there and come back home. But going to the University of Toronto, I had to take the bus and come back home at night. And up until I got married, I never slept over at anybody's house. Like I never had a sleepover. I never did any of that stuff. So we just weren't allowed. And I, I'm not first generation Canadian. And, you know, I say a line in the book where I feared my mother, but I, but I believe my mother feared for me and therefore treated me the way that she knew the world eventually would. So she was hard on me, particularly because she knew that the world would be hard on me. She really kept sort of that tight grip on who I was. And I rebelled against it. And not only did I rebel against it, going into the University of Toronto, which was a largely, as you said, white East Asian school, I was, I was like lost. So now I'm rebelling against, you know, even myself at this point, because I'm like, I don't want to be here. I don't even belong here. Clearly I don't because nobody here looks like me. So you have all of these tensions colliding into what for most people is the time in their life when they should be finding themselves, when they should be blooming. And what I was actually doing was recoiling so tightly into myself that I never enjoyed one single experience um, of my of my university experience. So getting through it then, were you able to find any student groups that you could get involved with? Or did you just, were you more of a commuter student where you just go get it done and then, you know, get out of there? So I, I think that the honest answer to that was I, I was hardly a student <laughs> because I, so in addition to now saying, I don't want to go here, I don't belong here. Then I just started to stop going. I'd, I'd miss classes. I would skip. I would be hanging out with friends or boyfriends and it was a disaster. You know, I spent six years finishing a three-year degree at the University of Toronto that was challenging. And I got a question in another panel. Do you think that your mental health, like that depression, you could have sensed that it started from way back there. And I just, it was the first time that I had an opportunity to think about that, you know, to think about how all those tensions collide into one person when they're supposed to be like at the top of their, you know, exploring their life, exploring who they are. But instead I am completely self-destructing um, for 
I would say four or five of those six years in in complete self-destruction mode. Yeah, I think that's a really important point that you bring up about um, the length it took to finish your degree, because I know that there's several students, people that I know personally that, um, you know, they have contention with how long it's taking them to get through the degree. But, you know, sometimes the thought of taking five classes for some people, especially if you have to work, if you have other responsibilities outside of school, children, it's actually very difficult. So I think it's really nice to hear that from you and to see that despite how long it takes, you know, you can still reach such high levels of success. You know, it's interesting. I, I was smiling when you talked about um, wanting to go to my master because my master was my alma mater. I did my undergraduate degree there and it wasn't all that mixed a school either. It was quite white. In fact, I became the, the first ever black student president of the student union. And this raises a question about politics. When you're going to school at university, a lot of young liberals, young conservatives, young NDPers, they spend a lot of their time in student politics. And then they go on from there to become a politician, probably in Ottawa, representing a constituency. And they do nothing else in their life <laughs> but politics. But you had a completely different experience. You weren't involved in student politics. I don't think you even had any idea that that would be part of your future life. Yeah, you know, it's interesting when uh, when students ask me, Selena, like the first question is, how does a young person like me get involved in politics? And I'm like, don't get involved in politics. <laughs> like, go live your life, travel, eat good food, eat crappy food, do something else other than be in politics first, like live. Uh, we spoke, I spoke a little bit about the pain that anchors my my principles and that empathy that is created from that. You can't really have a lot of empathy if you haven't heard stories, if you haven't experienced things in your life. Why do you want to be in politics? Because you like political theory? How does that allow you to represent your constituents? Do you think your constituents like political theory? Like you need to actually have something that you're passionate about. Go out and find that thing that you're passionate about. The thing for me is that I had made all of these mistakes around in university that I had to find. I actually had to find what I was passionate about. So I went on that search to find things that I ended up doing through entrepreneurship, mostly, you know, brain research and business. But I had to find those things that I was most passionate about and then use those elements, those passions and figure out how policy could help to inform or policy could help to drive some of the things that I was passionate about. But, you know, you have to live a little bit. Every now and again, I say you might even have to pick up the phone one day and, you know, the bill collectors on the other end and you're like, yeah, I'm going to pay it on Tuesday. You know, no money's coming in on Tuesday. (laughs) If you've never had that experience where you had to dodge a bill collector, you don't know how the majority of people live. Because the majority of people get those calls. That's the whole reason that they have a whole collections department because people don't pay their bills on time. You know, so you actually have to understand how the average person lives. So go and live, experience that living. And then when you're ready, go into politics and figure out how, because of what you've lived through, because of some of the pains and the hurts you've seen, how you could leverage legislation and policy and regulations to amend or to fill the gaps in some of the the inconsistencies and inequities that exist in our society and beyond. Now, I feel I know you very well, 
even though we, <laughs> we haven't met in person. And that's because I followed you when you first entered into politics. It happened by accident, I think, because it took the death of a member of parliament, Jim Flaherty, I believe, that got you uh, to take that leap into politics. So can you explain to me how that happened? So actually, you're right, and there's a little bit that's not right about that. So I owned a healthcare-based research management firm. We were running uh, clinical trials related to uh, neurological conditions. Of course, everybody's talking about clinical trials now with the vaccine production. That was my life. I also was uh, running Canada's first national epidemiology study on neurological conditions. I was a co-chair along with the Public Health Agency of Canada, looking at scope, health services, impact, and risk factors for priority conditions like Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, epilepsy. And my company had won a couple of awards. And we were, you know, just approaching that 10-year mark. And I thought, hmm, do I want to take this company international? Or do I want to leave and, you know, go into private sector? We were doing really well. We, we'd won the Toronto Board of Trade Entrepreneur of the Year. We were, you know, Black Business and Professional Entrepreneur of the Year. I was like, I want to try something different. We're getting to 10 years. So in December of 2013, I was enrolled in a executive MBA program at Rotman. And for the first time ever, I was part of a political science class. And the professor was talking about the capacity for your political capital to help you achieve some of your business goals. And one of the things that we were hearing with some of our clients that we were working with in the study was that people were having a hard time paying for medication or they had to separate from their spouse in order to get services covered. And I thought maybe politics could help with that because that will help to create equity, something I'm passionate about. So in February of 2014, less than two months later, I decided... I'll become a member of a political party, maybe go to a conference, maybe go to a meeting, help with some policy development around this particular issue. And then on March 8th, so this was before Flaherty even resigned, on March 8th, International Women's Day, I got an email that said, invite her to run. Do you know a woman who'd be interested in running in the next federal election? And I said, of course, me. And, and I thought, you know, I'd run against Flaherty at the time. I would lose, but I'd gain some political capital and be able to probably influence some policy. And unfortunately, he passed away and I was in a by-election, as you mentioned, general election, and then the rest is history. Whitby is, as far as I remember, about 70% white. Was it a difficult thing to enter into politics in a circumstance like this, where the majority of the people are, are white, you're not very many people that look like you, it would be. So was it difficult for you to enter into politics? Uh, what was it like going door to door, banging on doors, asking people for support? You know, first I had to go through the nomination process, right? So it's not only that Whitby was 70% white. Whitby is Flaherty country. Like Flaherty was a government official here for 17 years And the person that decided to run in his place after he died was the former mayor. She had been in politics for about 20 years, you know, either as a counselor or the mayor. So it was conservative. It was white. It was like, who is this lamb to the slaughter black woman who's going to come and try to run in Whitby? We've never elected a person of color in any position 
federally, municipally, regionally, provincially ever in this town. So who is she? And so the nomination process, I found the hardest knocking on the, the door of the liberal association and saying, hi, yeah, I'm Selena and I want to run. How do I do that? <laughs> and they were kind of like, who are you? Like, and where did you come from? And why do you want to run like against Jim Flaherty's ghost? Like, are you actually nuts? And that process, that convincing of my own party was the hardest part here in terms of campaigning, getting to the door. I don't know, man, I'm really good at the door because I don't try to convince people at the door. If you tell me that there was a policy that the liberals had that was, you know, wasn't that great. And I thought it wasn't that great. I'd say, yeah, that wasn't that great. I wasn't going to, I wasn't going to debate you at the door and say yes or no. We were going to have a dialogue. I was going to give you my opinion. I was going to put some data and facts around that. And then if we agree to disagree, I, you know, say peace. I said, you know, I hope I could get your, your vote. I hope you could trust that I'd be authentic when I get there. We're campaigning on bold, transformative government. I will do that. You better believe it. And people believed it. <laughs> That's why I won. It's really cool to hear the background of how everything went for you. And um, one question that I have is currently I'm a, political science student, and I have peers in my department that are also probably interested in this as well. Number one, how you were able to balance, you know, starting to participate in a political campaign along with running your successful business, um, and you had children at the same time, how did you find all the time to be able to engage in that. And the number two is for students uh, like myself that are listening that might want to get involved in politics. What, what is your advice? Right. So not only was I had a family running my business, we were completing like a national study and a campaign, but I was also in school. Right. So my last paper was due on, on November 4th, on November 14th. I, I believe the election date was anyhow, it was three days before election day. And of course it was probably, it was probably a super long paper as well. Yeah, I know. it was, it was like the last, the capstone project. So, you know, and I think that this is something that when I talk to students, what I want them to, to first of all, understand is that there isn't really a balance that you create in life. If you balance things, you give everything 50-50. There is prioritizing. And there were some times that I had to say, look, I cannot campaign from eight o'clock to eight at night because I actually have to finish my paper. I, I actually want to get awards at graduation. <laughs> I, I paid all this money. I need to have a return on that investment. So I, I just couldn't flop out of this. I had already experienced what that was like in my undergrad. I wasn't about to do that again. And so I, um, I prioritized uh, my school, my campaigning. But throughout the books, I, I really talk about the challenges that I had in my marriage. And um, I'm very honest about that because, you know, you have all these things going on. Something has got to give. So I have school, I have my family, I have campaigning, I have my business to run. How many things can you hold in this cup? Well, let me tell you some things that did get out of the cup. My husband was out of the cup <laughs> and taking care of myself. Hence the reason why I had a nervous breakdown in 2016. Myself, take that out of the cup and I'm like, okay, I could deal with my look after my kids, finish my course, do my business and do the campaigning. I'll, I'll keep those things in. The other two things come out. 
And I mean, it's a really important question when you consider how do you continue to do things? And sometimes you have to say no. Sometimes you have to prioritize other things. Uh, But I think one of the most important things that we need to prioritize that we often leave off or leave to the side is prioritizing ourselves and our physical, mental, and spiritual well-being. Eventually, that will come home to roost. Do you know? Do you know what time um, you really that that point really reached you? Do you know at, at what point you you knew you had potentially bitten off more than you could chew? Yeah, I, I it's tough to pinpoint. I know, right? It's it's tough <laughs> yeah. to pinpoint. Yeah. However, what I can say is, in writing the book, what I did realize was that it wasn't that I had bitten off more than I could chew, is that. So as I was writing, it was a cathartic experience. I was writing down my pains. I was writing down my hurts. I was writing down all this stuff. And what I felt like this weight being removed from me, like being lifted. And what I realized, I, I put the analogy of the cup on purpose, because what I realized that even after leaving politics, my cup still felt full. And the only thing I had in there was, you know, my, my kids and, and, you know, the work that I had, but it still felt full. And then as I was writing, I realized that it got emptier and emptier. What I was really carrying was a whole bunch of baggage, was a whole bunch of like grief and hurt and, you know, um, guilt about my mistakes and things. And as I wrote the book, that started like decreasing. It's been very recently that I've actually really put my husband back in there and really put myself back into my cup and started really looking after myself. So it's, it's not even something that I realized in that moment that I bit off more than I could chew because I just kept going. I just kept burning and burning and burning until I actually had to just stop. And I think what made me stop was writing the book, but also COVID. COVID just put an absolute, like nobody was doing anything. And so type A personality, Selena, who's like hustle, 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 was forced to just say, put the brakes on. And like really start to evaluate what you are going to prioritize. And yeah, no, it speaks to your openness. It definitely speaks to your openness. I, I really liked reading about how you were able to reconcile with your husband and how you're able to bring him back in. It was almost a sad when you hear about, you know, how you guys were going farther apart, but then you were able to bring it back together. And um, I think that's admirable. Thank you. Um, Selena, this is wonderful. The, you know, the thing is, the reality is that you won the election. You went to Ottawa, and it was almost like going into um, a strange land in some ways, uh, Ottawa, with these uh, career politicians and uh, parliamentarians and staffers and so on. And a lot of people said that you were considered to be bold, brash, brazen, opinionated. Uh, What else terms did they use? Fierce. But definitely you were a strong Black woman in Ottawa, I think you mentioned that you went into Parliament for the first first time. You didn't. You're not one of these people that sort of came to Ottawa and visited as a tourist and look at Parliament and that sort of thing in the past. So this is a new environment for you. What was that like? And you being the sort of person that you are, basically um, creating waves, both for the Liberal Party and for the political system as a whole. Yeah. So, you know what, Andy, I realized that they're going to talk about me anyway. So you might as well give them something to talk about and and create waves. 
So let me just rewind a little bit before I talk about creating waves and the kinds of waves that I was creating. So we have to realize that our democratic institutions are built on a principle of exclusion, right? Women didn't have the right to vote. Uh, indigenous people, Black people, we, we were not part of the infrastructure or the considerations of the infrastructure when it was made. So that status quo was then further reinforced by oppressive uh, policy, anti-Black uh, policy. We had Indian Act, we had residential schools, anti-Black immigration policy, you name it. It reinforced that status quo. So when you get to a place like Parliament, and when I say, quite honestly, a place that wasn't designed for me, it was because it actually wasn't. I wasn't considered in the initial infrastructure of the space. In fact, when I was there in the 42nd Parliament, I don't know if it's changed now, there is no dress code for women in Parliament. And so intentionally, I would show up, you know, I'd either wear, you know, a fancy outfit, because I do like whole couture, or I'd show up in jeans and a t-shirt just to send a message. You know, I did a lot of things intentionally. So all those adjectives that you used to describe me, yes, I would say I was bold. Yes, I would say I was brash. I would say that I was opinionated and I pushed. But you have to understand why. Because I was sold a package that said that the government was going to also be bold, transformative, government done differently, open, transparent, sunny ways. On top of being sold that, that was our whole mantra from our 2014-2015 uh, campaign. I purchased that. That's when I ran. I purchased that package. I said, okay, yes, that fits my personality. I will do that. Not only that, when we were elected, we were elected with a 180 plus majority. We had the whole side of government plus part of the other side. So if we wanted to actually be bold, transformative government done differently, that was certainly the time to do it. Now let's talk about making waves. The things that I was asking for, pushing for the repeal of mandatory minimums, pushing for expungements of criminal records for especially individuals who had cannabis possession after we legalized marijuana, after we legalized cannabis, pushing for increased investments in black communities, pushing for us to, to actually recognize the decade for people of African descent. I wasn't pushing, Professor, for the repeal of mandatory minimums because I was planning on going to jail soon. I was pushing for the repeal of mandatory minimums because I know it disproportionately impacted Black and Indigenous people. I was pushing for that equity because I know that Black and Indigenous people are overrepresented in our justice system. We have poor health outcomes. We have 40% of the, the children in Children's Aid in Toronto, 40% of them are Black. Even just look at COVID, 9% of the population of the city of Toronto is Black. We bear up to 30% of the impact, 25% of hospitalizations. Not only is systemic injustice making us sick, it is now killing us. So I'm supposed to tiptoe around and play nice in a bold, transformative government that has a majority? Why? Why do I need to do that? Because I'm supposed to wait. Because I'm supposed to be nice. Because people like us don't rattle cages. People like us don't make waves. <laughs> well, you met a real one this time. Because people like us, let me tell you what people like us, some of us 
who have capacity to do so are going to rattle the cage. Some of us are not afraid to break glass ceilings because even when you break them, if you're closest to the glass, guess what? You're going to get cut. I wasn't afraid to get cut because I knew that our community, if representation matters, professor, we have to speak up and do what matters to our community and our community is dying. And so call me what you want, but I'm, I'm going to keep doing it. <laughs> you know, that's, that's interesting that you mentioned this because I remember in 2013, I believe, or 2012, uh, we invited Justin Trudeau here before he even ran for leadership. And he gave a speech to thousands of kids and um, they were all eating out the palm of his hand because he was talking about doing politics differently, the sunny ways, et cetera. What happened to that guy? Because, you know, he really seemed to be, you know, very, very clear about the direction he wanted to take the country. And it was a very progressive, very forward-looking way. I mean, he talked about um, gender equality uh, in his cabinet and actually make it come about by having 50% men, 50% women in the cabinet. But what happened there was that he missed, uh, I think, a very important point is that it's not just about bringing in more women into the mm -hmm. cabinet. It's the type of people that you bring into the cabinet overall that matters. So the representational aspect. Can you talk a little bit about that and why that caused a kind of a rift, a difference between uh, the rhetoric and the mantra of the Liberal Party mm -hmm. and what you saw and observed when you were parliamentarian? We had a couple of hashtags during that 42nd parliament. Hashtag diversity is our strength. Hashtag add women change politics, right? You know, to the academic in me, I thought that that meant intersectional feminist approaches. <laughs> no, it didn't. <laughs> it just meant diversity is our strength and add women change politics. It was just hashtag. And so what I think, what I think is I really actually believed and so you'll notice in the first two years that I was in politics, I was relatively quiet. When people started really hearing about me, it was, you know, after the braid speech, you know, in September of 2017. And that was an intentional decision to drop the gloves and to actually be myself because I had tried for so long within that government to, to push on the inside. So let me give you a couple of examples. You know, in, in, 27, in 2016, as parliamentary secretary to the prime minister, and I won't even talk about tokenism, I'll talk about things that I wanted to drive that were important. In 2016, I spoke to the prime minister twice in August and December about recognizing the UN decade for people of African descent. I said that what we needed to do was we needed to have broad consultations around, you know, what needed to happen around justice, recognition and development talking about, you know, the justice reform. I said that you have to repeal mandatory minimums. You have to expunge records for cannabis possession because we know programs like Tavis in Toronto who had an over-surveillance of Black communities and therefore had an over-incarceration of people from Black communities. So then the right thing to do to redress that, to create that equity, is to then expunge those records. Um, I guess that that was too bold. Because what happened in 2017 is that I was never invited back to another meeting on any Black issues, period. And when I say none, let me fast forward to 2018, when he actually made the announcement in January of 2018 to say that Canada will recognize the UN decade for people of African descent. 
And when he announced in the federal budget for the first time ever that Black communities will get an investment, I was surprised at both of those. This is a government that said diversity is our strength and add women change politics. I am both of those and yet was excluded, not invited, never in the room. I mean, I talked to Kwame McKenzie now, who's at the Wellesley Institute, big guru on, on mental health. And he's like, you know, Selena, I'm sorry. We didn't know. Well, I didn't know what meetings were happening. The community knew and they were like, well, where's Selena? And they would just kind of brush it off. But in, in 2018, that's why I made that decision in 2017 that I was going to do things real different because I had, I'd been very, very patient. I gave them a lot of long rope. And so it was a frustrating couple of years and it got more frustrating even in 2018 to the point of 2019 when I made a decision to leave and then to sit as an independent. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's amazing to hear about that. And I actually have two questions that are related to this. Um, the second one will be about that, um, that fateful phone call. Before we get to that one, I want to ask you about um, the other people that you worked with. So you, you, you mentioned it in your book that it wasn't all just, you know, Justin Trudeau. You had um, you and, and your other MPs together um, and how you guys were often bossed around by the junior staffers um, or more affectionately, the boys in short pants. Um, I want you to, to potentially speak, speak to that a little bit more not just them, but anybody else that was in the building, it's, it takes more than one person to make an uncomfortable, um, an uncomfortable work environment. And I, wanna, I wanted to ask you, were you treated differently than any of the other MPs that may not have been Black? And what, what was that situation like for you, just first off? Right. So I, I, I described some of the, the situations where I was um, excluded. So for sure, that, that happened. Um, and the record will show that, that I did not attend those meetings. So most of the stuff that I put in the book around the politics side, there is receipts. <laughs> I, didn't read, I didn't write anything that I couldn't bring receipts on. And so there would be receipts of who attended these meetings and who was not there. In terms of other things that, that happened, I was the only Black woman elected out of out of not just in my government of 180 plus people, but out of the 338 members of parliament, the only one. Currently, there's only one Black woman, again, recently elected, Marcy Ian, our leader, um, Anna Mae Paul, the Green Party. She's not an elected official yet. She's the leader, but she's not in the House of Commons. So I was the only Black female member of parliament. And when we are elected, you might recall a couple of years ago, there was a shooting on the Hill, right? And so security has a book in which they're supposed to memorize the 338 members of parliament. And so if an incident like that ever unfortunately happens again, members are then escorted to a secure location and protected um, until the situation is resolved. Every time, at least once a week, going into the building, going into the same rooms that I've been in. Again, that whole first year, I was parliamentary secretary to the prime minister. And I would walk into spaces and people will say, ma'am, can I help you? Ma'am, can I see your credentials? Ma'am, at one point I was asked if I was Bill Morneau's help. <laughs> I, just, I really wish I could make this stuff up, but I don't think I can make this, this rich of a conversation up. 
you know, I just kept thinking, not only does this place not make me feel like I belong, but I'm unsafe. So if something does happen in that space, I almost felt like they would say, you lady, move out of the way. Let me go save the, the, the white guy politician. You know what I mean? And, and with, with 338 members, you think if I was the only one, Zach, like you'd memorize me first. Hmm? Yeah, that's the only one. She's the easiest to remember. Dark chocolate lady. Good. Next. But it's the refusal to actually acknowledge that there is a shift in what politicians look like. And this didn't just happen here when I went on international delegations as, as the parliamentary secretary for international development, I'd be asked, who's the parliamentary secretary? Who's the Italian delegation? And my staff would point to me and people would look through me to the guy in the back of me and almost like look at him like, you know, come around. Like, why are you letting this black lady stand in front of you? And ask again, who is the parliamentary secretary? Who's the head of delegation? That was a, a continuous death by a thousand cuts frustration to deal with. Not being able to get on the bus, not being able to get like on the, the parliamentary transportation. On, it was a hot mess. And that's unfortunate to hear. You know, you think about these things as a black individual and all the, uh, just the marginalization that we have to face in the workplace. And it's, it's interesting to get it directly from you because you've been in that situation in a place within a liberal government that's supposed to be inclusive. And it's unfortunate that you are getting this type of treatment. And that leads me into my next um, question that I want to bring up related to that phone call that you mentioned. Um, I was actually, along with my mother, we were watching the interview that you did. With your mom? <laughs> yes, unfortunately. Sorry, mom. <laughs> yeah, well, no, I'll let her know that you said that. But um, yeah, this question actually comes from, uh, in part from her as well, um, just with Andrew Chang there. When you guys are talking about the call, and I didn't know about this until I heard about it, but... Um, you used the colorful language and you expressed what you told him. Um, what she was wondering is when it comes to those types of conversations, I understand that you were completely riled up, you were fed up. How would you say, what, what, what side of the fence would you sit on in terms of maintaining the position that you know that you are in with you know hundreds, maybe thousands of young black women and, and men looking up to you seeing you in this spotlight and seeing how you're conducting yourself. And then how do you reconcile that with, you know, speaking your truth and being authentic uh, and raw like you were with Andrew Chang, which, how do you bring those two worlds together? They're, they were never separated from me. I think when we think about our young people in particular that often have to face, especially black, let's just talk about black women for a second, who have to deal with racism and sexism on an ongoing basis, on a daily basis. That is microaggressions. That is the trauma that the American Psychological Association in 2018 called. That's what microaggressions do. They cause trauma. They didn't cause pain. It doesn't cause hurts. It doesn't cause general unwellness. It causes trauma to your physical and mental well-being. And I want young black women to know that they do not have to accept behavior that is untoward on them. They don't have to accept, ir irrespective of the title. So because he has the title, I'm supposed to do what? He's not supposed to respect me, but I'm supposed to show reverence to him. Because he has a title, because he's white, because he's a Trudeau, 
it, it makes him any more or less than I am. So I should, so we should for somehow acquiesce or just be polite all the time. I'm not sure that that's the message that I want to send to young women who are about to go into a world that clearly is polarized, that clearly when we have a president or we had a president of the United States gives us a zero out of 10, calls us all kinds of things, says all kinds of stuff about this, knows that even when there is insurrection on the Hill, that some groups of white supremacists will be escorted off while we are met with batons. Let me tell you, the time for being polite has gone out the door. The time for being polite, for me anyhow, and I mean, some people may still decide to not use this colorful language. I said right from the beginning of my book that I have been, that this has been me from jump. I'm not going to change that. What I want them to know is that standing in their power, standing in their truth, at those moments when, when they can, and I knew that I could, I knew that I, I couldn't be fired. Yes, there would be some consequences for me. And I haven't worked for a good year and a bit after that. So I knew that there would be consequences. But is it worth staying quiet just so that I'd not have consequences? Or is it worth speaking up so that he knows and most others know, don't ever talk to us that way again, period. We don't deserve it. So it's no... It's no regrets then. No, 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 none at all. Not even a little one. No. You know, given that experience that you've had, which uh, has not been all that positive in politics, um, what do you say to young Black women, uh, particularly young Black women who want to make a change in, in, in our society, who want maybe to get involved in politics? Do, do, you, do you recommend politics for them? Or do you say that there are other ways in which you can make changes? For example, you can join a societal group um, and make changes through that group. Uh, you can do a lot of things. You can become a business person and make changes um, that's material and much more substantive than if you were in politics. What would you say to those young people who may be thinking about making change and thinking that, that maybe politics is the only way? I tell them to run, but run in packs. Run like the squad in the United States. Love them or hate the squad in the United States is irrelevant. The point of it is that they have each other's back. You know, they're like-minded. They push for that, that agenda and they protect each other. So I say run, but run in packs. Run and don't lose part of yourself in that running. Don't lose part of who you are. You know, Professor McKenzie did a report in 2019 on the cost of racial inequity to the United States the cost of marginalizing people like what happened to me in politics. You know what that cost is to the United States? One to $1.5 trillion. 6% of their GDP is what racial inequality will cost the United States by 2028. That is the cost of not leveraging what my experience brings to communities, brings to organizations, brings to institutions and to policy and to conversations. That is $1.5 trillion left on the table. You know, like this is not, this is no longer about performative anything. This is about substantive work. And so if we run, we have to run as ourselves. We have to bring all of those experiences, every pain, hurt that you've had 
needs to be brought to bear into these spaces, in particular politics. Because when you bring those experiences to politics, when you bring those experiences to any organization, when you bring that value that if it's been created in yourself to those spaces, you are an asset to those organizations. And that's where we hear, you know, equity, diversity, equity, inclusion has a, a positive return to businesses. There's always an increase in the bottom line because we are actually an asset to organizations that should be leveraged. And so I would tell young black girls to run. And if they're thinking about running, I'll do you one better. Hit me up on my DMs and I'll help you with your campaign. Every single black woman that has run in the last little while, Anna Mae Paul, Leslyn Lewis, um, Marcy Ian, it doesn't matter, has my cell phone number. Selena, can you help me with this? And I make the time to talk to them because we don't have time anymore. The urgency of now demands that we think differently about how we approach politics as Black people in this country and in Western civilizations. We have to support each other. And we have to support those who are going to disrupt because we know we need disruption. We have been wait- We've been here hundreds of years and we don't have equity. And we're supposed to what? Wait your turn, pretty little lady. I don't think so. I think that's a really good way to end this beautiful conversation with you, Selena. And a mantra. It's a, it's a reality. We we are a multicultural society, and if we want to live up to that goal, if we want to reach that destination, I think as um, Cecil Foster said last week in a in a similar kind of panel. He said, you know, we are not there yet. We're, we're, we're trying to get there. And like the train porters, uh, we're, we're, we're hoping to reach that destination at some point. And so well, thank you very much for helping us, giving us some more fuel to help us to reach that destination. I really appreciate you being here with us today. And yeah, just to echo Andy's sentiments, you know, what an amazing conversation. What an amazing book. Um, to anyone that is that is considering purchasing, I would say absolutely. Um, if you want to get a authentic and and real book, um, it's it's definitely one that you should go for. And yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for joining us today. We really appreciate your time. And uh, yeah, thank you, thank you, Professor. Thank you, Zach, so much. This was a wonderfully spirited conversation. I feel like I got to you know sort of get some of my my views across. Um, my challenge to Canadians now, allies and otherwise, is to to keep moving. We need to act. Um, our challenging the government is not an indictment. This is one of the greatest countries in the world, but we have our challenges. We 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 didn't even mention you know missing and murdering murdered Indigenous women and girls. We have we have a lot of work to do. We have a lot of work to do in in a couple of of key communities, especially the Black and Indigenous communities. We have a lot of work to do. It requires all hands on deck, but it does require us to have different people doing different things. So it requires some of the process and planning people. It requires some of the quieter people, but it also requires some people who are going to protest and and take it to the streets and rattle the cages. And so we need to have all hands on deck to be able to do that. Now, let's hear from community members with stories 
from their personal experiences. My name is Ubaka Obogo. I am an associate professor in the Faculty of Law at the University of Alberta. And this is my story about an experience I had with structural racism as a faculty member at the University of Alberta. A few years ago, I filed a human rights complaint against my employer, the University of Alberta. It was in many ways a watershed moment for me in terms of both understanding and coming to terms with how deep structural racism can cut. What triggered my complaint? Well, it started when the dean of my faculty at the time excluded me, the only black faculty member, from a salary raise that was given in secret to the two other colleagues in my cohort. I was an assistant professor at the time, and there were two other colleagues, both white, who were also assistant professors. So the dean gave this raise to the other two and did not give me that raise. As I said before, I am the only black faculty member. I'm the first and only one ever hired full-time in a permanent position in the faculty of law. I found out about the raise when one colleague who thought that I got the raise as well came to my office to ask about and share the good news with me. I was shocked to find out that he had been given a raise and I wasn't. The letter that he showed me showed that there were no reasons for the raise. He just got a raise. I then later confirmed that the other colleague also got a raise. And so I was the only one in the cohort who was excluded. When I asked the dean why, he told me I wasn't supposed to know about the raise and that I should apply for a raise if I wanted one. This was infuriating to hear because the others did not apply, but got it anyway. They simply saw a letter that said, hey, you have been given a raise. So I did not know why I had to apply for mine if my two white colleagues did not apply for theirs. Seeing as I could not get a satisfactory response from the dean, I went to the university. When I asked the university why, they told me they could not discuss the matter for reasons of confidentiality. So I had no choice but to file a human rights complaint. When I complained to the Alberta Human Rights Commission, the initial response was that they did not see it as discrimination. This was shocking to me because it seemed obvious to me that it was discriminatory on its face. The papers filed by the university in response to my human rights complaint confirmed that the raise was given to my colleagues because the dean thought they were a flight risk. That is, that they were likely to leave the faculty and the university and go elsewhere. And in order to stop them from going elsewhere, they had to give them a raise which then raised the question, why was I not considered a flight risk? I have tried over the years to get an answer to this question, but I still don't have one. It certainly is not for lack of merit. I am, by any measure, a very accomplished scholar. Even on the most modest measure, I am at least on par with those who benefited from the secret race. And that's me being the most modest I can be. I'm a nationally recognized scholar in my field. I am very extensively published and recognized as a leader in my field. But even having to say that to me just sounds wrong. I don't have to prove that I am what I am in order to be able to get something that my colleagues got without having to prove anything. 
My human rights complaint is no more. It was dismissed by the Alberta Human Rights Commission because they still did not think it was discrimination. They didn't think this happened to me because I'm the only black faculty member or because of my national origin. I did explain to them that by considering me not to be a flight risk, that was clearly discriminatory. Why is this the case? There is ample evidence that racialized persons like myself have difficulty moving between jobs. And the reason for that is because we're racialized. Law faculties are not brimming with black academics. You can count the number of black academics who have been hired into law faculties in the country on your fingers. It's not a lot of us. As I said before, I am the first and only one ever hired in a permanent full-time position at the University of Alberta. And the law school at the University of Alberta has been around for over a hundred years. Now think about that for a second. If I am not a flight risk, it is not because I cannot get a job elsewhere, not because I'm not in a position to be hired and I don't have the qualifications. It's because no one will hire me elsewhere and they know this. It's simply because law schools do not hire black people. I still don't have any answers to all my questions. I don't have any answers as to why I'm not a flight risk, as to why it's not discrimination, and as to why excluding me is a confidential matter for my employer, the University of Alberta. From my dean to the university, to the Human Rights Commission, I have just wild guesses and no answers to the clear questions. I suspect this is how structural racism works. It opens up wounds that you cannot heal. It leaves you with a lot of questions that you can never find answers to. As a victim, you just learn to live with it. Thank you for listening to my story. Hi, so my name is Herman Afwerk. I am a second year political science student here at the University of Alberta. How would you describe anti-Black racism? I would describe it as being the dehumanization of Black people, the prejudice belief that Blackness is somehow inferior and less worthy. How have you dealt with racism in your own life? I guess it would be more towards like the education system where you have school systems believing that somehow Black students are like incompetent or not capable of taking um, like academic courses such as AP or IB, um, don't have the same cognitive ability. Um, so I guess like that throughout my like education has happened, especially in high school. But I guess you, in order to like, you have to prove to them that like you are worthy, you do have the same competence. Black people aren't monolithic. We're diverse. We all have different capabilities. And I think that that needs to be recognized. Have you ever had to self-police your behavior? Yeah, um, I guess it would be more like not being the angry Black woman, um, not showing too much emotion because people being, oh, she's too being too aggressive, she's being too sensitive. So in a way, trying to like pace yourself and be like, okay, like keep your cool, right? Or else you'll be too emotional. What steps can we as a society take toward improving race relations for all? I think that recognizing that um, the system puts a dominant culture and an advantage, right? And then you have minorities who are put at a disadvantage because of the way it's structured. So I think acknowledging the fact that um, there is racism, um, 
more listening and less talking. So that will really improve it in moving a step forward um, because we'll have a more um, equal and understanding um, society, really. That was Black Talk. Special thanks to our show sponsor, Kias, the Cool Institute for Advanced Studies at the University of Alberta. Find out more at kias.ualberta.ca. Our show was co-hosted by Andy Knight and Zach Penda. Our show producer is Katrina Ingram. Technical production by Tom Merklinger. And I'm Nicola Barito. Our theme music is Fling It Up by Dyson Knight of the Bahamas. Graphic design by Anna Chakravorty. A huge thanks to our expert guests, faculty and students. The University of Alberta acknowledges that we are located on Treaty 6 territory and respects the histories, languages and cultures of First Nations, Métis, Inuit and all First Peoples of Canada whose presence continues to enrich our vibrant community. Find out more about Black Talk at blacktalk.ca It's Brigadoom home time now And we ain't even trying to explain No, too late for you to hide now If you are there, you must come to play Masquerade to the city Freedom to expose yourself is ecstasy So free your mind and leave we be Don't waste your time casting judgment on me Cause he don't wait, this is happening Ain't nobody stopping me This is happening Ain't nobody stopping me This is happening Ain't nobody stopping me Nobody stopping me Nobody This is Black Talk.